This week on the show, we will have a WireGuard VPN server how-to with Unbound on OpenBSD, including pesky ad filtering, auditing for OpenZFS storage performance, not a Clara article, OpenBSD 7.2 on a ThinkPad X201, the practical guide to FZF, and replacing PostFix with DMA, as well as other cool things in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 500. Woohoo! Guarding the wire. Recorded on the 15th of March, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash now to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. You will definitely hear a difference in audio levels because my Rode Podcaster has been repaired. Long story short, turns out it wasn't the Podcaster or the uh, other electronics. It was the cable that was broken. Hmm. But uh, no complaining anymore. We are happy to have the regular audio quality for you as well as a packed show with good stuff in it. So let's head right into the headlines this week. Uh, starting off with how to set up a WireGuard VPN server with Unbound on OpenBSD. Yeah, uh, so the poster here starts off saying some months ago they published an article on how to build a WireGuard server with ad blocking on Linux, uh, focusing on Debian and PyHole. Uh, but recently they wanted to reproduce the same setup on an OpenBSD server. Uh, and so they went for that. Uh, so, and since there's no PyHole for OpenBSD, uh, they managed to accomplish the same results using a DNS resolver Unbound and the unbound-adblock package. So to get started, they fire up their OpenBSD machine and do as package underscore add wireguard-tools to get the wireguard command line tools and enable packet forwarding. Uh, net.inet.ip.forwarding equals one and same for IPv6. Uh, then they have to actually set up wireguard. So they make a wireguard directory and then use wg keygen to generate the private key, save that off, pipe that into WireGuard pub key to get the pub key and save that off as well. Uh, so now we can copy the contents of that private key file and create their WireGuard config. So they set their private key to the private key they just generated and pick a listening port. Uh, and now they have the basics of WireGuard. Then they can create their client configuration. Each client will also need its own uh, public and private key. And the clients will need the server's public key as its peer uh, and the list of IP addresses is allowed to use, which if you want to route everything over the VPN will be 0.0.0.0 slash .0, .0, 0 for v4 or colon colon slash 0 for v6. You can put the endpoint of the VPN server and a couple other settings and you're now good to go. So now that you have a VPN and going in both directions, everything's working there in the server side, you have to say what IP addresses the client is allowed to send data from, uh, which you know most VPN configurations will be just the client's one IP address. Uh, and set that up and all the details are in the article. Once that's up and running and you have uh, the, the local IP address on the WireGuard interface, uh, so in this case they're putting it in etc slash hostname.wg0 uh, and setting up an IP address and a subnet mask, now WireGuard will, have, will start up and run the WG0 interface and it'll have its local IP address. 
Uh, then they show uh, some basic configuration of setting up PF on the interface, allowing traffic in on the, the WireGuard interface, and setting up NAT on the way out. Mm -hmm. In this case, out of the VIO0 interface. So then once WireGuard and PF are running and reloaded and all and ready, then it's just a matter of configuring Unbound to be your DNS resolver, uh, making it listen on the interface that is the VPN uh, and the basic configuration there, and then adding the unbound-adblock package, uh, which they show how to do here. And with that being set up, uh, adding the underscore adblock user that, so that it can automatically run and update itself uh, and get it set up, then they're able to have the DNS server start blocking domains that are known to be the source of ads. So now, as long as the, DNS, uh, the VPN clients use the VPN server as their DNS server, which they're going to want to do, then it will block ads uh, on the server side. Mm -hmm. So the pages so they, load faster? They just, yeah, uh, and especially like, you know, I have this tablet I use occasionally, uh, mostly for audiobooks, but if I use it to watch YouTube or something, uh, it's really difficult to get an ad blocker for this weird uh, little tablet, whereas if I just do it on the server side, then it's done on all the devices and I don't have to, you know, magic do special configuration on every device which can be really helpful if you also have something like a smart tv where you can't easily control what it's doing that so they show how to configure unbound to use the, the block list uh setting that up uh with an rpz file and uh suddenly now everybody that's resolving via it will see the changes and they show how to run the update and they can see that you know they're blocking 207,000 domains that are related to ads. And they keep growing, yeah. Yeah, and they also have a, a handy way to test uh, a URL you can go to, and uh, it should say ad blocking enabled if the ads are blocked. Uh, they also show how to use uh, dnsleaktest.com to make sure that all your DNS requests from this machine are going out via the VPN and not uh, exposing what your ISP is. And also one uh, to confirm that you're using DNSSEC as well, because since it's unbound, you might as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all in one package. Yep. So very handy guide to not just setting up WireGuard, which is quite easy, uh, but taking it the next step and doing an ad blocking DNS server. And uh, those instructions should work on pretty much any BSD. You know, there's minor differences between the different BSDs, but uh, you know, unbound and unbound ad block will be there on all of them. If I run my local unbound on my let's say laptop that would mm -hmm. certainly also work right yep, yeah you can do this ad blocking there too mm -hmm. it's just if you do it on the machine that is your router it'll do all your machines yeah uh, including whatever. the ones that run an os where you can't just use unbound or whatever mm -hmm. good excellent uh let's move on to auditing for openzfs storage performance which is another article by clara systems written by jim salter and it talks about, well, how to find the storage bottlenecks in your particular storage environment. It starts with storage is a complex and important part of any project's architecture and should be planned thoughtfully, ideally ahead of time. In this article, we'll talk about how to understand, measure, and plan for your storage performance needs. So, consider a bottle of soda. The bottle itself is much wider than the neck where the cap screws on. But in order to get the soda out, you must pour it through the neck, and making the bottle wider won't improve flow if the neck remains the same diameter. 
This concept of bottlenecking can be used in nearly any computing performance discussion, very much including storage. There's typically one of several major factors which limits your performance, and that factor is what you must improve in order to get higher performance. Proving the others will have little or no effect, since uh, like widening the base of a bottle, but leaving its neck uh, the same doesn't get you anywhere. All right, so understanding throughput. Throughput is by far the most commonly talked about storage metrics, though it's rarely the most important one. Turns out, typically measured in megabytes per second, or MIP per second, for the international uh, unit. Throughput is a simple measurement of how rapidly your storage system can provide requested data to you. Technically, that's the uh, bolded text here, any measurement of data in megabytes per second is a measure of throughput. In practice, however, this metric is most commonly used as a measure of top-end throughput how quickly your system can provide data under the most favorable conditions possible. And so for yeah, this... But app, like you were saying, not the only one. Then you have IOPS, yeah, IOPS, which is how many different things that it can serve per second. And usually these things start to come together, right? If you're asking for a lot of small things, uh, then eventually to get that many megabytes per second, you have to do more requests per second. And usually that's, especially with hard drives, where you run into problems. You know, uh, a hard drive that we use as an example uh, normally can achieve about 200 megabytes a second of throughput if you're just reading files sequentially. But if you are asking for a whole bunch of different 4K files from all over the drive and it has to seek between each one, then you'll be lucky if you can get even a single megabyte per second. because if we think the average time it takes to move the head from one point to another point on the disk is more than four milliseconds, then in one second, which is a thousand milliseconds, we can only do that 200 times. And so, you know, if we're only doing 200 times four kilobytes, that's only 800 kilobytes a second. We're not even getting a megabyte per second out of the disk. And then there's latency. So latency is the inverse of throughput. Instead of asking how much data can we move per second, latency asks the question, how long will it take to retrieve or store a piece of data once I've asked you to? So although we typically ask speed questions in terms of throughput, latency is the way in which we experience it, like waiting for a download to finish. Users don't really care if data moves through the system at 100 megabytes per second or 1 gigabytes per second. They care about how often they must stare at a wait icon or for how long they must stare at it before getting what they ask for. And applications are just the same. Much like throughput and IOPS, latency is frequently referred to in a very specific way. And in storage terms, latency is most commonly a reference to application latency. In other words, not just how long does it take to pull one megabyte of data off disk, but how long does it take for my database to return one megabyte of result from a query that I submitted. And when used to refer to hardware, like buying a new disk, latency most commonly refers to seek latency of rotational hard drive. Like I mentioned, that little head there needs to go over the platter and find the right position. The time it takes the head to skip from one track to another and wait for the target sector to rotate under the head and reading non-contiguous sectors. And then there was networking, of course. So for projects of any real size or scale, there's one last bottleneck to talk about, the network. Accessing the storage on another computer or device across the network adds the latency and throughput limitations of the network itself to those of the storage. 
The network increases the latency of each operation due to the time it takes to move a packet across the network and bottlenecks throughput to, what on, to that on the network, which is usually lower than the high-end throughput of any storage device itself. And so when you put it all together, we have the three uh, predictors of your workload, throughput, IOPS, and latency. Then there are specialties like databases, virtual machines, file servers, like a mix of both, right, network and disk. And so uh, they provide a couple of ways to measure your current performance uh, using IOSTAT, in this case, or ZPool IOSTAT, but IOSTAT is also an independent utility. If you don't run ZFS, why aren't you, by the way? Uh, and there's other ways described in the article how to measure this and can get kind of a feeling for what your storage performance is like. Very nice article, good start into the topic. So next up, we have some notes on running OpenBSD 7.2 on a ThinkPad X201. And so it's been a while since I've uh, had a laptop that's been running uh, OpenBSD. Recently, I bought a refurbished ThinkPad X201, and this was a great occasion to put OpenBSD on it. Of course, installing OpenBSD on a ThinkPad is not difficult. Uh, you need to install OpenBSD with an Ethernet cable attached in order to be able to run the firmware update tool to download the firmware to make the Wi-Fi work. Uh, so this particular laptop is not a new one. Uh, the machine's from about 2010 and was one of the last ThinkPad X models with the classic keyboard. Uh, and it has the great track point as well. <laughs> so it's uh, an Intel Core i5 M520. It has only four gigabytes of RAM. That, that hurts a little bit. Uh, a 1200 by 800 uh, display resolution and 128 gig SSD, which I'm guessing is actually newer than the laptop. Mm, yeah. But they say, although the specs are not uh, spectacular, this machine is quite usable. Uh, using some great tools from suckless.org, we have the DWM Windows Manager with SL status and the ST Virtual Terminal. And they show uh, the X input stuff they had to do to get the mouse working. And they say the X201 has a small trackpad with two buttons. And uh, for ThinkPads, it also has the track point, uh, which comes with three buttons. And so they, they don't use the trackpad because they like the track point. And so they have their X init RC and shows how they set up their mouse. Uh, they say it also makes it possible to use the track point for scrolling by moving the pointer up or down with the middle mouse button pushed down. And then they say in the BIOS, I've changed the settings so that the function key acts as left control and left control as a function key. Uh, I love that feature of the ThinkPad of being able to decide if the far left most button should be control or function, depending on what you're used to. Uh, it's quite handy. Uh, so they also have uh, some extra config lines because they've, uh, I think, inverted their caps lock key around as well. Uh, yeah, so they, they never actually want caps lock, so they've set their caps lock as a, a second control key. And they show how they did that. Then uh, they mentioned how they extend the battery life. Uh, so they're installing the OpenBSD Freak D, as in CPU frequency. Um, and with that configured, they're now uh, monitoring and seeing that their battery runs for about three and a half hours, which for that age of a battery is actually quite good. Mm. Oh, yeah. They note that everything else works. Uh, when they close the lid, the laptop goes to sleep. When they open the lid, it wakes back up, including the Wi-Fi and X and everything. And they were able to mount an SD card and boot from that SD card as well. 
So they say the display resolution is a little cramped nowadays, 1200 by 800, uh, when running two windows and Emacs side by side. But uh, they say they're a touch typist and typing on that keyboard is wonderful, uh, although maybe a bit loud. Uh, with the deceleration mod I mentioned above, the track point is a joy to use and feels completely effortless. Uh, and they say the escape key is located where it should be above the F1 key, whereas on their modern X270, it is to the left of the function keys, uh, so it makes some time to get used to again. But the X201 and X270 are almost identical in size, but in every other way, they actually feel like the X201 feels smaller. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Oh, they referenced the data swamp from Celine, their mm -hmm. website. Uh, about the WCONS control to lower the fan noise. Ah, yeah. Nice that all the BSDs are uh, linking to each other here and there. We are moving on to a little section about FZF, which uh, I found uh, reading actually some other uh, articles from the valuable.dev. And I found it interesting enough because I haven't, I know what FZF is, uh, fuzzy search in the shell, but I haven't played too much with it. So I, I thought we would cover this a little more as it uh, goes into how to set it up, little snippets here and there for your shell integration, for your uh, init files and some key bindings. So pretty much everything that you need to get started. And so this part is the first, it's the shell integration part. And they also have a second practical guide also linked in our show notes uh, for the shell integration. So first they're building the file explorer and then the shell integration follows. Okay, so in this first one, um, uh, we're going to use FZF's shell integration. If you use either a bash or a Z shell or the fish shell, uh, they're not the biggest fan of fish, their opinion, use whatever works for you. So they will focus mostly on Bash and Z shell in this article, uh, but I think you can adapt the, the things they show here. So what are they covering here? Uh, first is what keystrokes they can use for fuzzy search through files and directories. Very quickly, you will get used to this and will look for this everywhere. Uh, how to use a completion using FZF in the shell, especially like for long paths or long file names that you quickly want to type. Uh, how to customize the key bindings and completions, and also how to launch FZF in Tmux panes automatically. Good thing they mentioned how to change the key bindings, because their default key binding is that control T does a fuzzy find of all files and subdirectories of the working directory and sends the output to standard out, whereas that's not what control T does on a BSD. Yeah, <laughs> we're so used to other functionality. We need to have this on a different key combination. Uh, yep, there's Alt-C, fuzzy find all subdirectories of the working directory, and run the command cd with the output as an argument. Okay, and there's Control-R. Oh, Control-R is also history search backwards, isn't it? Isn't it? Depends on your shell, I think. Yeah. Uh, that does fuzzy find through your shell history and output the selection to standard out. Yeah, doing a fuzzy find of the history could uh, save a lot of time versus... Uh, it's been very interesting watching other people use Unix uh, <laughs> in my work uh and see you know when when i saw this originally uh when i was teaching and the students would spend a lot of time pressing the up arrow trying to find the command they did uh. you know 10 minutes ago or something i i thought it was maybe mostly because they were students or whatever but then you see people doing it in the real world too and i'm like hmm 
uh, and being able to you know search that more quickly with a fuzzy search does seem like it would be quite useful. Oh yeah, so much time savings, and it's a couple of seconds, but it all sums up over the day, and you may save a couple of minutes or at least get commands quicker. Yeah, or, if you save a couple of minutes a day, that adds up over months and years. Or it's a very complicated command with like five arguments, very long, and you need don't want to retype that from memory, right? You just want to pull it from yeah. history. Or accidentally forget one of them and then yeah. it doesn't do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so they talk about how to customize those. And there's plenty of uh, examples and snippets you can just copy and paste and adapt. And then they walk you through. There's always uh, images and pictures from the command line invocations, uh, like the command and trigger. And for example, the uh, what else do we have? Ah, some uh, customization customizings. So there you can say, oh, I want to only certain uh, certain commands to have FZF support, or only certain uh, parts of the file system tree, for example, for whatever reason. And that is also shown here. Then the last part of this first article is the FZF in Tmux, where you can say, um, you can force FZF to open a new pane of your Tmux session. And that is also integrated with FZF-Tmux. Uh, that, that was the first article. And the second is, again, building the uh, file explorer. And they talk in the beginning, of course, what's the difference between a CLI and a TUI. Uh, if you are really particular about these things, and then they talk about what FZF's invocation is on the command line, like you can pipe something to FZF, and then you have that strings input, create three entries, all separate via backslash n in this case, and then uh, the TUI of FZF will be displayed, allowing them to type now query to fuzzy search the, the entry that we want. Okay, then they have some default commands displayed, also how to use, for example, search something uh, something in FZF, and the result of that should be passed to Vim to edit those files that were found, things like that. Or how to create a uh, list of directories and pass that also on to a new program or run all those uh, results, and they walk a little bit through the search syntax. So it's all quite uh, convenient, and you don't have to read the whole article. You could just you know start and try out certain things, come back later to it once you're more familiar with the keystrokes. And at the end, ideally, you're the FZF master. <laughs> Check out also the other articles by thevaluable.dev. They have a bunch of good Unix uh, intros from beginners to more advanced users, like for Vim or for other parts of the Unix space. Okay. Cool. So next up, we have Dan Lingill's other diary, where he's got replacing Postfix with DMA. So Dan says, I like Postfix. I've been a fan of it for over 20 years. I've deployed it on every host uh, to handle outgoing mail. Lately, though, I've taken to using DMA, the Dragonfly Mail Agent, as my preferred mail handler on jails and hosts which don't need to deal with incoming mail, only outgoing mail. After first getting serious with it about six months ago, I've decided to remove Postfix from all of my internal hosts during a consolidation where I was turning two smaller hosts into one bigger one. So in this post, he's using FreeBSD 13.1, and he says that he's been moving jails as they uh, arrive on the new host and migrating them to using DMA. And he says, I've been running a couple of Ansible playbooks on them to remove and disable Postfix and instead replace it with DMA. 
which is already part of the base system in FreeBSD. So he has some links to his Ansible playbooks on his Git instance there. Uh, so he basically just runs the postfix-remove YAML playbook and then the DMA YAML playbook, and then he's got his systems converted from postfix to DMA. Oh yeah, I should check that out. I also, I've recently been looking at various playbooks from other people, not also at work, but also uh, from, from the web. And it's kind of interesting that everyone has kind of their own style to it, even though it's very structured, but people uh, use variables more or they have, <laughs> I've seen playbooks where there's mostly like shell tasks. It's not, why are you not using the modules that use the functionality? Well, I was just migrating to Ansible. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, but then they kind of, oh, I have it in the playbook now. I don't need to change it anymore. Um, but yeah, looking at Dan's uh, playbook, that uh, is quite straightforward and comprehensive. He also says uh, one thing to check after you've done the conversion, though, is some applications will want to connect uh, to port 25 and you may get failures in your jails. Uh, so he says he uh, reconfigured those applications to connect to the smart host value defined in his dma.com. Ah, so DMA is not using port 25 or is that? I think it only does the command line stuff because it's meant just for sending mail. Not oh, right. Yeah, not it. to receiving. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and for a jail, that's perfectly fine if you're not running a mail jail. Okay, very nice. Thank you, Dan. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Uh, feedback and questions time. We get questions from you and we collect them and put it in this exact spot. The questions are directed to feedback at bsdnow.tv, of course. And the first one is Dennis with a thanks and short and sweet goes, Hi guys, I really just want to say thank you in all caps for constantly mentioning my blog on your podcast. Keep up the great work. I really love what you're doing. Greetings from Germany, Dennis. Well, if you write such good blog posts, then of course we cover that. That yeah. makes sense. And if you have a good blog post you feel like we weren't covering, then send it to feedback so that we know about it. Yeah, sometimes we don't have it on our radar or it just escapes us. But, um, well, you spend time writing it and putting it all together, so we might as well cover it. And if it's a BSD uh, or Unix-related uh, podca podcast <laughs> uh, blog post, of course, then, hey, definitely the source for a new episode. Okay. Yep. 
next uh we've got an email from luna saying hey they were listening to the a recent episode and alan mistakenly said uh pigeon was related to trillion uh but they're correct that no i was just fuzzing a bunch of similar things together in my brain because it was from 20 years ago uh but trillion was a windows software that did multiple im where pidgin was originally called game or gaim which was gnu AOL Instant Messenger, yeah, uh, which is what it did originally, and then it grew all the other protocols too, and that's when they, uh, one of the reasons they renamed it to, to Pigeon, uh, which is uh, a word that means a kind of a amalgamation of a bunch of different languages into a pseudo language, and you know made sense for a messenger that's combining all these different messaging services into one, and yeah, I used that. Uh, I replaced Trillion with Pigeon uh, when it got better, and because it supported more different things and just had a more an interface that suited me better because it was more unix like and gtk and not trying to be all bubbly and colorful and what the people that made trillion thought everybody would want for an instant messenger yeah but it's like so many new messengers are now up like of course there was the telegram uh, well yes yeah. we, we had the whole thing back when there was like AOL, MSN, and Yahoo, and, and ICQ, or whatever, and then IRC. Uh, and then eventually those all kind of went away. And then we had this whole resurgence where now, yes, there's like Threema, Signal, Telegram, Matrix. and lots of others. Uh, and then we also all have, you know, Slack and Workspot or something. And then hmm. there's like six other, you know, work focused messengers and uh plus you know discord and microsoft teams and oh, all yes. these other things and it's just like i thought we went through all this already but, but back in the day they had more like these cross messenger applications where you could send uh messages to other people in yeah. different networks right and, and then we thought how about we stop doing this craziness of having all these different protocols <laughs> and we've created XMPP, this one protocol that allows you to have a federated messaging service. Yeah. It's kind of like, especially like federated in the, the same kind of way as, as like uh, Mastodon or whatever to replace Twitter. It's like everybody would just have like their username at one service and you can message somebody on any service by just doing it. And it was... Great. And at one point I was using, like we were talking about in that episode, I was using Pigeon to be on the Google chat thing, the Facebook chat thing, the a video game chat thing, and all and all those messengers and stuff all at once with one program. Hmm. And I didn't have to know the person I was talking to was on this service or that service or anything. It was it was probably the best we've ever had it. And then it then it all went downhill. Yeah, because the the companies started walling off their own messengers and didn't make yeah. it compatible with the others. And here mm -hmm. we are again, splintered yeah. and uh, with five different messengers. Yes, it's kind of like <laughs> we had IRC and then we had all the messengers and then we had XMPP and then we had the Walt Gardens. And yeah, I don't think we're ever getting back to just one thing again. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, I cannot communicate with you because I am not willing to install yet another messenger just to talk to yes. you. Like I have these three and, and I'm not budging and you have these other three and are not budging. So let's go back yeah. to email. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it is what it is. Um, so yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for this correction and uh, uh, the feedback. Okay. Uh, this next one is from Lubomir uh, about IPFW question. Okay. 
Uh, Dear BSD Now team, perfect show as always. I was wondering if you can help on how to get the initial command for a pipe or queue creation. When a standard IPFW rule is executed, one can view it with IPFW show or IPFW list. When a pipe or queue is created, IPFW or DNCTL returns only details about the status of the pipe or the queue, but not the command that was actually used to create them. Huh. Not my yeah, f- firewall. I had some degree of that gripe before uh, myself, where I think some of the detail is there with one of the commands, uh, but it it doesn't map as one to one back to, like the firewall rules do, where just like the output of IPFW show really does give you the exact command that will recreate the rule. <laughs> Uh, whereas with the pipe stuff, it doesn't as much. Uh, I think in particular, for me, the annoying one was the NAT rules rather than the the pipes and queues. Um, but I think you can do IPFW show pipe and the pipe number, um, but it, it, it still doesn't give you exactly the the same kind of output as the other one does. So why would you need to That's look at that in the first place, like see the traffic? Well, uh well in particular i think what they're looking at is it's already configured and i'd like to see what i put to configure it that way so i can maybe change it or whatever oh okay it is also just slightly annoying that everything in ipfw is done with ids and those ids are a bunch of separate namespaces so there's like firewall rule 100 but then there's nat rule 100 which are not the same thing Mm. Uh, and it's very easy to conflate them like just by convention, I use different ranges of numbers for them so that I know what's what. But yeah. uh, I don't have a brilliant idea of how to do it better, though. So, If someone knows or is more IPFW-focused, uh, then definitely let us know. And we'll be happy to connect in a future episode back to this one. And then we are all smarter for it. It's easy to remember. It's episode 500. So, um well, we should actually celebrate that a little bit, <laughs> shouldn't we? <laughs> We're at the end of this episode and we haven't talked yeah, about it's, it. Yeah, but 500 is not special. <laughs> Either the power of two when we get to 512, There's or it'll that, be yeah. episode 520 <laughs> when it will be our 10th anniversary of doing the show. Ooh, exciting. Okay, then let's just wait a little bit longer. <laughs> okay, well, then I think we have it so far. But yes, uh, if you want to write in and tell us which of the 500 episodes of BSD Now was your favorite, then email us at feedback at bsdnow.tv. Oh, yeah. Like, which one is the most memorable that you will never forget or keep going back to, right? That has still uh, audio yeah. material that you want to re- re-listen to, if that's a word. Because uh, I've listened to a couple of old ones uh, recently. Partly, I think one of them I helped summarize it as a, I think we did it turned it into an article in the journal, right? Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, so many years of podcast now. Especially the interviews are, are quite special. I think they can be listened to multiple times, especially the historic ones where they are, like, not outdated because they didn't talk about new developments, but, like, how it was, like, 20 or 30 years ago. That is historic value yeah, that doesn't like, go uh, away. Very, very early episode, I remember handcuffing 
Paul Henningkamp to a chair in Malta and <laughs> extracting the story of jails out of him. <laughs> okay, I'm not asking where the handcuffs were coming from, but yeah, good to have that. <laughs> okay, um, then we're done for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you like the audio quality again. And we'll be back with another episode next week. See you next time.